0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I think we should, I think we should uh, get started. Uh, this is the third in a series of, of four debates about, about how the structure of inequality is changing as we move into the, into the 21st century. And this, this, series, this debate series is sponsored by, by the Center for the Study of Poverty and Inequality, by Iris, by CCSRE, by the Stanford Center on Ethics, and by the Ethics and Society Program, we'll be uh, examining today the, the the relationship between politics and inequality, uh, asking such questions as how 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 um, how voting behavior is shaped by by by, by inequality, uh, whether a, a meaningful democracy can be. Can be fashioned in the context of extreme inequality, uh, and and how the effects of, of 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 money and influence on political outcomes might be might be moderated, if indeed we think that 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 they should be moderated. Uh, to some extent, the, these types of questions are are precisely the the types that are, I guess, at least putatively being debated before before Congress now. Uh, but we, unlike Congress, have the have the luxury of 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 an ivory Tower Vantage, a luxury that I, I suspect will be exploited. Uh, let, me, let me turn to, to, to the introductions. I'm, I'm David Grusky and I'm, I'm going to be moderating this discussion, which in this case just means introducing the, 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 the speakers. Uh, as for those introductions, uh, let me begin with uh, John Fairjohn, who is uh, the Carolyn S.G. Monroe Professor of Political Science here at Stanford a uh, national fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, member of the National Academy of Science, in short, a, a, a legitimate academic superstar, someone who's made foundational contributions to, to the study of American politics, to, to political institutions, uh, to political behavior more generally. Uh, the second discussant will be Jeff Manza, who's professor of sociology at Northwestern University, uh, associate Director of the Institute for Policy Research and also someone who's made major foundational contributions, uh, contributions that are all about understanding how the, how the political landscape has shifted as we've moved into, into late industrialism. So what, 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 what is the structure for, for today? It'll be the, the same structure that we've used in the past. We'll start off with the presentation by John Fairjohn. is that right? Okay, John Fairjohn for 25 minutes. Then we'll have uh, uh, a twenty-five minute presentation by, by Jeff Manza. Uh, the leads have an opportunity, if they wish, to respond to one another, and then we'll just open up to, to to questions from the floor. So welcome.
1: Well, I may have made all those contributions. I haven't made any contributions to the story about inequality. So this is my maiden voyage to think about inequality in public. Um, when Jeff asked me to do it, I, I warned him that I don't know anything, <laughs> so uh, that I would study a lot and try to come up with an idea that I thought would be interesting for this context. And so what I decided to focus on is the recent growth in inequality over the last 30 years or so, uh, which is uh, very sharp, and I think uh, when you look at it before, um, before the imposition of taxes or trans- taxes and transfers, it's pretty widespread. That is to say, there's been an increase in inequality Let's call it market-driven inequality in the sense of pre-governmental, uh, that that stretches across uh, most of the advanced democracies and probably wider than that. Uh, and it's you know it's a it's a sharp phenomenon and and uh, and so I want to see if I can say anything about explaining explaining it and explaining its its um, its post-tax or post-fisc incidents. That is to say that uh, there's been sort of a most of the countries aside from the United States have have used their tax and transfer system to reduce the post-tax rise of inequality substantially. So if you look at the Scandinavian countries, the average, on average, they've taken taken back about half of it, all right? So uh, if you look at the uh, France, Germany, Italy, they've taken it back about 35% of it. If you look at the Anglo countries like uh, Great Britain, um, uh, Australia, Canada, they've taken about back about 30%. The United States has taken back about an average about 23%. So it's a and and that's the second lowest change from pre-tax to post-tax or pre-fisc to post fisc inequality incidents of the advanced democracies. And with the most most extreme one b- was is Switzerland. And Switzerland, of course, started from I just shouldn't say of course, Switzerland started from a base of much a much greater level of equality to begin with in the, in the middle 70s. And so so the Americans in some ways stand out even relative to the Swiss in the sense that that we already had a fairly unequal distribution in the mid to the 1970s and it's become much more unequal and the governmental fiscal system hasn't done much to correct or to do anything about it. So the, that's the thing to explain, all right? Now, you know, I should say here's my general worry or concern. Uh, I think there is a problem. A thing to worry about about the relationship between inequality, high levels of inequality, and democratic rule, and um, and philosophers like Aristotle and Rousseau and others did worry about that. I mean, Rousseau and Aristotle both thought that high levels of of, of inequality could uh, corrupt the operation of republican institutions. Rousseau thought that would be a bad thing. Aristotle wasn't so sure, but whatever. I mean, they did trace inequality to being to to uh, to a problem for democratic rule. Aristotle's theory was quite simple. Basically, he thought people couldn't help but govern in the the interest of of themselves and their own class. So he thought if the poor controlled the city, they'd rule for the poor, and if the rich controlled the city, they'd rule for the rich. So his solution was to adjust the franchise, that is, restrict the franchise, so that the balance of power rested with the middle class, you know, which which he thought (laughs) uh, would have interests that were roughly correlated with the common interest. Uh, And if you couldn't do that, if the middle class was too small or too fragile or too dependent, then the next best thing was to arrange a, a kind of power-sharing arrangement where the rich could check the poor and the poor could check the rich and you sort of average out these tendencies. Um, so anyway, so there's a worry about this. But I think modern democracy, the way what we consider consider democracy, it is representation, large-scale democracy, seems to be more robust than what the the institutions in Aristotle and Rousseau were thinking about. And so, for example, Adam Jaborski argues that once a country gets to a certain level of prosperity, and that level was, I forget in which dollars, $6,000 per head, roughly, that you get virtually no transitions away from democracy. That is where democracy means large-scale representational democracy. So the view is that it's, fairly, it's a fairly robust phenomenon. So should we worry about inequality? And I think there's still reason to worry about it. I think even with, I think Adam's... Javorski's definition of democracy is an extremely minimalist definition, and I think within the c- category there's a range of things that we'd recognize as more or less democratic, and I th- still think it's worth worrying about whether inequality undercuts the, the more um, democratic arrangements within and democracy. So I, I think there's reason to be concerned if there's uh, really large-scale inequalities that are uncorrected, and those run, roughly run along the lines of of, of evolving a society in which there are two or three or four more sort of segmented societies where people don't feel and don't in fact have that much to do or much in common with each other. So I think that's the worry. And as I said, in the United States it looks like, at least lately, uh, the tendency has been to permit market-driven inequality to pass right through. Um, and so then the question is, what explains it? So I should say, you know, there's a, there are economic theories about inequality, the most famous probably is Simon Kuznet's theory who says basically that, um, you know, that that it's kind of, inequality's related naturally to growth spurts, you know, sort of, so that when you have industrialization, inequality rises, and then as the growth spurt sort of tapers off, inequality, uh, you know, d- uh, declines, so you get more, roughly more equal distributions, All right. So, I mean, it's, it's not so clear what the causal processes would be. I mean, one possibility is that, is that when you're industrializing, there's sort of, Inequality comes out as a natural in- incidence of the sort of rap- rapid mobilization of capital and accumulation that goes with it. And then there get to be political pressures and tensions and that causes the state to implement reforms or regulations or tax and transfer schemes to uh, you know, put a lid on the, on the, on the political conflict and, the, and, the, and the, the effect of those regulations is to retard growth and so that brings the growth rate down. So, or there could be other other ways in which the operation works I want to look more broadly than that kind of an explanation. I mean, that's a, an explanation that just basically puts the, the explanation on a single cause. That is, when you're getting a lot of dislocation in the capital formation process, you get natural inequality. And when that goes away, you get less. So, but I think there's probably more things going on. It's a richer phenomenon. So I want to think that there are you know, maybe two, let's say, three kinds of causal factors that may play a role. I mean, one you might think of as extraneous to the political system in some sense. I mean, nothing is really gonna be extraneous, but for for a first sort of approximation, it makes sense to me to think that this broad worldwide thing that's occurred in the last 30 years where virtually every uh, advanced democracy has experienced lots of market-driven inequality makes me think that there's probably something that's relatively independent of particular political systems, it's driving at the market level, unequal uh, outcomes, right? So that, so that's one. And so one possibility as a source of inequality is really just pre-political or somewhat separate from the political. I mean, the, the political institutions might have to go along with it in some ways, but uh, by facilitating the formation of capital through through uh, arranging property systems, etc. But but on the whole, it could be that way, all right? Or there could be uh, inequality dr- uh, generating processes or permitting. Pro- I want to put I- either inequality generating or permitting processes. Uh, that are endogenous to the political system, so that there's something about the way a political system works that that exacerbates or attenuates or doesn't attenuate very much, right? So, so that's a kind of political idea where there's something going on inside the political arrangements of the country of a country that explains how much inequality results. And the third is something like cultural or public opinion or popular attitudes. That's another possibility, that people in different countries have different attitudes and different dispositions to accept or not accept unequal outcomes. To think they're unjust, to think they're unfair, to think they're okay, to think they're merited, whatever. And that could be a source of variability. And so so that seems like a somewhat separate uh, kind of explanation. I mean, you could say that's political, of course it is in some sense political, but it's somewhat different than the ordinary day to day operations of a political system. So I at least think we ought to keep those things on the table to think is is potential explanatory. explanatory variables, right? So I want to think for a minute about other countries. And I saw I've already started that a little bit. Um, well, I've, I've one more distinction before I do that. I want to worry about this increase in inequality about whether, what kind of a phenomenon it is within the income distribution, right? Is it a phenomenon, roughly speaking, at the top or at the bottom, right? And, you know, I mean, the older tradition of public finance basically would say, that you have to look at the whole tax transfer scheme, and there's lots of transfers, and so, and lots of those transfers, even in the United States, go to people at or near the bottom, and so people would say that if there's an increase in inequality, maybe a lot of that is happening at the, you know, throughout the distribution or toward the bottom. I don't think that's true of the recent increases, and if you look at the tables that have been generated on lots of different data sets, either tax-based data sets or the income studies, Luxembourg income studies, it looks like what's, the, the the big changes in inequality are at the top 1% or point point. 1% of the distribution. There's an enormous stretching out of the tail, the right-hand tail of the distribution. And while there may be something going on in the, on the rest of the distribution, I think it's a really second-order and older story. I mean, it's certainly true that at the beginning of that period, the United States had uh, you know, lower rates of transfers to the lower quartiles, living inside of aged, aged people, than many of the other countries. That's still true. But I think if, even if you look at the United States, it's there's not a dramatic drop. In income in the lower deciles. I mean, those, all the deciles have gone up to some extent. Well, not very much, to some extent, but the top decile, or the top tenth of a decile, or of a percentile, has gone up enormously. So I think it's a right-hand side, right-hand tail phenomenon mostly. Um, and I think that's general. So the real question is, is it taxed away? <laughs> right? And I think there, there, uh, as I already said, there's evidence, there's reason to think that it's not really taxed away in the United States. So next question i ask is whether whether this is an american phenomenon or not i've already sort of gestured towards an answer the answer is yes <laughs> uh, it's not completely an american phenomenon i already said that that the other anglo-saxon countries are less distributional and less prone to tax high, you know that right hand tail than than other countries but they're substantially they're, they're, well they're less prone to tax in the united states and more prone I'm sorry, less prone to tax it away than the other countries, but more prone to tax it away than the United States. So the United States is still an outlier in that respect. So I think you still have to look, look at, a, at, a, at a local explanation, at least as a first order of business. It's not to say there's nothing to explain in post-stature Britain. There definitely is, if you look over time, there has been a declining transfer, you know, income transfer rates in, in Britain since 19, uh, since the '70s, and that's, that's true. But I don't think it's a, anywhere near the effect that you see in the United States. All right, and I'm leaving Switzerland to one side. So, secondly, sort of as a consequence of that, if if you agree that it's a it's a right hand tail problem or issue, not a, I, I don't want to put a normative spin on it. It's a right hand tail issue. It's got a basically the explanation for it, it's got to center on the tax side. You know, that is to say, we're not. I mean, while these people are taxed for transfer purposes. They're not receiving substantial transfers relative to their income. So, so basically, the question is whether or not people in the right-hand tail, people who are in the upper 1% or one-tenth of 1% of the income distribution, how much do they get to keep of, of their market-driven uh, increase in, in, um, in income? And, and I think most of the explanation is going to be in the tax side. So when I turn to, for example, looking at political attitudes, I'm going to look at tax attitudes. It seems like that's a place to look. And I think there's some interesting phenomenon, right? All right, so let me make a few remarks about this. First of all, I think it is an American phenomenon. I think it's a right-hand-tail phenomenon. I think it's tax-driven. That's my claim, all right? And that's from a survey of the stuff I've been looking at, all right? Um, here's another phenomenon that is from roughly... This dates roughly from the 1980 now, t- till now. the last quarter century or so, all right? Now, another thing that dates from 1980, there's a lot of other interesting things that date from roughly that period, middle 70s, 1980s, something like that. One is, uh, American growth rates have been pretty substantial, substantial since then. Been a few blips here and there, but on the whole, we've been in a very high growth period compared to the late 60s and, and 70s, right? I mean, we, we went to you know, from a 1% GDP growth rate to three and four, and maybe sometimes more than that in that period. There's been a few downturns, but they're very short and fairly mild, right? So th- that's, a, that's, a, that's a time series fact in the American data. And it's also the case that compared to other advanced democracies, and I'm leaving aside China, the Asian tigers, et cetera, at least compared to the other OECD type countries, et cetera, American growth rates have been relatively high and relatively longer live than most of those countries. So so there's a possibility, and I'll come back to it in a minute, that there's a connection between between, um, uh, permissive public policy towards income distribution and relatively high rates of growth. Now, And it's not, you know, I could leave it as a correlation, but of course there's, there's, there's kind of mechanisms that are suggested if you've paid attention for the last 25 years uh, that might might bear some of the explanatory power of that correlation. I mean, one, one is a sequence of tax cuts that have been put in place since the early 80s, and the other is the deregulatory, deregulatory um, movement that has gone on since the early 70s, right? So there's been a trend in the United States to to reduce the level of, regulation that's uh, you know public policy, or at least federal level regulation—and to uh, reduce federal taxes and to shift taxes substantially towards state and local taxes. All right. So that has a lot of different effects, but one of them is that state and local taxes are a lot in incidence flatter than federal taxes tend to be, as far as I can say. So, so there's so all these phenomena have been going going on, and they may be connected to higher, relatively higher growth rates, and they may be connected to as well to po- uh, certain kinds of political beliefs. So, so I think that's a possible causal. I mean, it's even possible or even pretty likely source of places, place to look for explanation. So what explains this phenomenon? What explains these policies? You know, and I think that the explanation is kind of obvious, you know. I mean, well, there's, here's another correlation. Here, a couple more before I get an explanation. One is that since that period, uh, there's been a, bit, a pretty big change in the nature of American political parties. Parties are much more homogeneous. And than they used to be, the Democrats are and the Republicans are. They're much more separated from each other and they're much more ideological, right? And there's been, at the same time, a migration of certain kinds of policies into one kind of one party's platform as opposed to the other. So, so that's, and tax policies are among those, right? That is, Republicans generally have reliably different tax policies there than Democrats. And what's more, when Republicans are in office, especially in circumstances of either unified or even large minority Republican governments, they're in a relatively good position to implement those policies because their party is relatively homogeneous, and so they have an easier time agreeing with each other. You kind of see the incidents of that in the the W. Bush tax cuts, where he was able to get his party to agree so quickly on tax cuts that they were able to put it through in a non filibusterable piece of legislation or leave the administration. This is something that that, makes it possible for something like a majoritarian imposition of a party policy that, of a kind that wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, you know, 30 years ago, or at least would have been pretty pretty unlikely. So um, so here's, so that's, uh, I mean, those are things on the table. So change in the nature of parties, um, uh, change in how partisan the parties are, uh, change in the, na- the nature of, or cleavage between party ideologies, um, uh, sort of general pro, uh, well, low-tax position of the, Democratic, of the Republican Party and a flat tax preference on that party and a generally push in that direction. Then the final correlation I want to mention is that if you look at over time where it is that the, over time, that the increase in inequality has occurred, it's universally Republican administration phenomenon. I mean, under under the Republicans, inequality increases. Under the Democrats, it's flat. right? It doesn't increase. Or this doesn't increase very much. So, you know, it's, pretty, it's to me, Those are these are all sort of exterior, you know, correlations or you know, connections. But it seems to me to be pretty clear, at least from the from my interest read of the data, this is a Republican phenomenon. You know, and and um, and it's it is tied closely to the nature of policies they think are best policies. And um, and so I think that's the, the the likely way an explanation is gonna have to go. So so how can we complete the explanation? I mean here what's the problem with that as an ex- why isn't that a finish to the explanation, for example? I don't think it is a finish to the explanation because Because um, I mean, you have to you have to explain not only why Republicans do what they do, but why people elect them, right? So, so and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the problem with to explain is this that that um, you know what Republicans are advocating is very low tax, relatively low taxes, that is to not redistribute wealth between the the wealthy who are generating a lot of it in the market to other people. So presumably, it's the other people you have to explain right, because there's the, the wealthy don't form a majority, you know, so, so the question is why do they do this, you know, and, and it seems like, broadly speaking, there's two kinds of accounts you might give. One is, and they're both, they're both um, accounts that run through beliefs, certain kinds of beliefs, so one, one belief people could have is that, oh, that the belief I already suggested is a plausible belief. Republican policies are pro-growth, you know, and we benefit from growth, even if we're not at the top end of the distribution. So we vote for Republicans because they're pro-growth. So if we, if we put them in office, we'll we'll reap some rewards from that, right? Um, so that's one explanation. Another explanation is that people could be distributionally optimistic, right? They could say, well, oh, you know, it's true that I'm below the median income now, but next year, watch out, I'm going to be way up there, you know, and then, I wouldn't want to be in a position where I've voted for a high-taxing party and then be subject to those high taxes now that I'm, when I'm going to be rich next year, or two years from now, or three years from now. And of course, you know, taxes happen every year, so so the tax effect is geometric, right? That is, you know, every year you get to, you get to be you know exposed to that new tax rate. So, so, so there's there's two kinds of beliefs that could support people who are less well off than some level, you know, uh, enough to get a majority, voting for Republicans in spite of the fact that they are not well off because they're optimistic about the, the growth tendencies of Republican poli- uh, uh, policies, or because they're optimistic about their mobility prospects, right? So, you know, so one question is, you could ask, and has been asked by some people in the literature, um, isn't that kind of stupid? <laughs> you know, I mean, why do people, how, could people, how could you believe that? You know, that, I mean, especially the latter, how can people be optimistic in that way? Don't they realize that the bottom end of the distribution is big and the top end is small? So how can they believe they get up there? You know, like if you look at the tail, it looks income distribution look like this, right? Right, Where most of the mass is down here on the left-hand side. So how can they believe that? And so there's, it, I mean, there's a guy at MIT named Benabu who's done a bunch of studies of this asking whether or not there are plausible mobility processes um, that, that could support beliefs of this kind rationally. There's where people aren't making mistakes, they're just forming rational beliefs. And he shows under pretty plausible circumstances people can have, uh, by plausible, I mean mobility processes that are consistent with data on mobility, um, they can have beliefs. It's, it's, not, it's not hard for people to have beliefs like this that would be rational. So it's, it's not so crazy that people could form optimistic beliefs about mobility that would be sufficient uh, to support you know, a fair amount of support for parties for the Republican Party. So, so it seems like that's the uh, one way to go. But I mean, it's, my guess is if you read those papers, you'd say, God, there's a lot of math. <laughs> you know, Is there any evidence here? <laughs> There seems to be a lot of reasoning and calculation, but so you might not be persuaded just because you'd say, "I, I don't see any inputs to this. I see a lot of thinking, but I don't see any inputs." So, so you might you might think, and I do think actually, that um, that there is a problem about optimism. You know that that some people, I think people, I'll talk about this in a minute. People may indeed be optimistic about mobility, optimistic about their prospects, but they have other attitudes which would make you think that they it's not so easy to. Explain why they're, why people who are relatively not very well off are voting for Republicans, and I think they need to be worried about. So I'm going to talk about that for a minute. But I think so far I'm telling you first. Uh, I have an explanation, <laughs> you know, and it's not too bad, right? I mean, the, the explanation is the Republicans did it. They could do it because they're the kind of party that can put things in place, um, and they've been they've been in power often enough. And and the outcomes have, have the right pattern, that is, the inequality increases during Republican administrations and not during Democratic administrations. You might ask, does it reverse in democratic administrations? No. It went up a little bit in Carter, but you know, it's not too much. But Clinton, it went it blipped a little bit. Now, now Clinton did raise taxes, you know, but not enough to really retard this. So I think you need more of an explanation. You need to explain not simply it going up during Republican administrations, you have to explain why it didn't Go down during Democratic administrations. I mean, it seems like it could. After all, they're a unified party too. They had a period of unified government this long. You know, um, they could have done something. You know, but they don't really tend to do it. so. That's a question: Why don't Democrats un- undo this process? They don't seem to do it. And I think the best explanation for it's going to have to be that they're afraid to do it. <laughs> you know, that that somehow there's something out there in in the public tax aversion or something. Uh, or maybe this this set of beliefs, optimism about either growth or mobility that restrain even Democrats. So I think you need more of an explanation than I've given, but at least I'm pointing towards where I think explanation has to go. All right, so let's talk about something about um, public opinion. So, well, people don't like taxes. I mean, you can find that in surveys. You could look it up. You know, but... That's not too surprising, but, but it's also maybe not surprising that most people think the rich pay way too little in taxes. That's really reliable. Like two thirds of the people, repeat, I mean, I've seen, there's, there's like series, you know, like whenever you ask, two thirds of the people say the rich pay way too little in taxes, right? Then, here's the striking fact. So they think it's a good idea, we should change the tax system. And so there's a lot of support for changing the tax system, to reform the tax system. And you know what they think is a good idea? It's phenomenal. They think we should adopt flat taxes instead of a progressive income tax. The rich pay too little, so let's reform the tax system and make them pay less. <laughs> That'll teach them. So that's—I mean—that's a striking. I mean, it's God knows why this is, but it, so, so you know. So there's so there's some strange things going on. So, but what it seems to be the case is that is that um, there's unhappiness about being taxed. There's a sense that there's things that are unfair, and and but the effect of it seems to be not to do anything that corrects the unfairness. I mean, that seems to be what's coming out of the public now. This seems to be a st- pretty stable set of, a pretty stable phenomenon, as far as I can tell. I, don't, I haven't studied it well enough to be sure of that, but it seems pretty stable. That's the world that Democrats have to face, right? I mean, here they're, it, and so, it, so I think the thing to explain is how, why do Democrats have to, I can understand why Republicans can work with that, but why can, how did it get to be that way? How did these beliefs get there? And 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 is that a, 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 a strong constraining factor on what the Democrats could work with when it comes to making uh, fiscal policy and I think it is i think it is I don't really claim to have a complete explanation of that, but that's that seems to me to be a really interesting really interesting issue so then of course then as as you know and we're going to see it again the that was the puzzle of the um, the elimination of the estate tax where again in the in the case of the estate tax, a tax which the incidence of which is you know visits very very few people and yet and yet there was an agreement you know by large majorities to abolish that and that's even in some ways harder to explain than 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 the than the continued support for flattening, you know, for flat taxing or flattening the tax system in each successive tax reform. Now, and my uh, colleagues, Alvin Urbushka and Robert Hall, who are the apostles of flat tax at Hoover, uh, would of course, you know, disparage my point saying, well, they're not really, they're not real flat taxers, you know, and, but I don't think, I don't think that the resistance to flat taxing that you see in the tax code is coming from the people. I think that's coming from special interests who want to do other things with the tax code I think that from public opinion, it seems to me the big pressure is flattening the tax code, and I'm getting—I'm beginning to wind down. I can tell now; my battery is running low. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, So that's my okay. So the summary is: I see rising inequality. I think it's an American phenomenon. I think it's. Assisted by, uh, brought about by, well, it's largely brought about by in the beginning market forces. I mean, I think the inequality itself is generated by market forces. The long period of relatively long period of a Republican ascendancy is permissive towards it; that is, it adopts policies that permits it to be sustained through the operation of the fiscal system. Um, and I think they've effectively adopted the policies that bring it about, which is say, relatively flattened, flattening and lowering taxes when they're in power. And I didn't say much about it, but but deregulating things There's also been an associated decline of labor strength through the union movement, which has also put um, other removed other impediments to to, uh, uh, to growth and things like that. But that's but I think that's most of what's gone on. I think the puzzles that come with me that come for me that I haven't been able to answer have to do with the nature of public opinion and why it has the particular shape it does. I think so, there's possibly some explanation. in in that the optimism about growth, I think, may be to some extent warranted. I think the optimism about mobility, according to some economists, may have an explanation. Whether it's a sufficient explanation, I don't know. Um, The beliefs about flattening could be rationalized in that way, but it's hard to explain the actual words people use if that's true. So that's that's what I think accounts for it. Now, the final thing I wanted to say, David, sorry, what can be done? David asked me what could be done about this. And the answer is simple, elect fewer Republicans. That'll slow it down, but it won't stop it, <laughs> you know. But put spine in the Democrats. That's impossible. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you know, if, if Democrats were really, if you could get them willing to do it, then maybe they could turn it around. Could they stay in office with those policies? Well, if the public opinion is what I suspect it is, my guess is probably not, and that's what Hillary thinks too. So, Thanks.
2: this up so I can more easily run through my PowerPoint uh, slides. Well, it's a real honor and a pleasure to follow John on this podium. I've admired his work for a long time. Um, My uh, my talk um, in a sense will complement some of the things that John said, and in particular, I want to Try to understand the puzzle he left us with at the end, which is why don't the Democrats have more spine, so to speak, um, in in uh, in trying to propose policies that might might uh, redress the the trends in inequality that uh, that he uh, he spoke about. So let me begin with a puzzle, and the puzzle is a simple one, um, and that is why did public policy allow uh, income and wealth inequalities in the United States to expand after. Uh, the, ni- the early 1970s. As you know, between 1945, the end of World War II, and the early 1970s, inequality in the United States uh, reduced, uh, in fact, quite quite significantly. But beginning in the mid-1970s, inequality has grown. And uh, as John pointed out, most of the growth, or the, 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 the most important part of that growth has been at the far right uh, 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 tail of the distribution, it is at the very highest earners uh, and, and wealthiest Americans. So um, the puzzle could be, could be extended to say, uh, why is it that uh, that the very poor. Why is it that the poor, who are far more numerous than than the uh, the very wealthy, have not uh, taken a greater share of the, uh, the an expanding economic pie during this this period? And so that's that's kind of the puzzle that uh, that I want to start with. And as I said, I, I want to focus my answer on trying to sort of develop a kind of bipartisan understanding of, of the problem and and uh, and say and develop uh, some some. Uh, some explanations for why this might be the case so i want to take talk about uh, four things in particular Um, first of all i uh will focus some attention on the question of who participates in American politics because um, as we'll see, there are fairly profound differences in terms of levels of political participation among particular groups. And um, this is, I think, an important part of the puzzle as to why the United States is so different than uh, the other other democratic societies that John spoke about. I want to say something about how differences in uh, class differences affect voting behavior, and, and also the creation of, of political coalitions inside the party system and, and how that has shaped or potentially influenced the kind of policies that the Democratic and Republican parties have pursued. Um, then I want to say something about uh, how policymaking, some of the ways in which inequalities might influence policymaking in Congress and elsewhere. And then if I have time at the end, I'm going to say a little something about policy policy responsiveness now there's a lot of things i'm not going to talk about Um, the uh, you know in particular i'm not going to say anything about some of the institutional inequalities in the american political system governmental bureaucracies are structured in important ways that that favors the interest of some actors some powerful actors over others i'm not going to say anything about that i'm also not going to say anything about the media um, which is another way in which um, perhaps public opinion and attitudes towards things like tax policy that John mentioned uh, might be shaped by by the patterns of influence over the the ideas that are discussed in the media and finally I'm not going to say anything about the power of investment which is an, um, another important component that shapes the kinds of policies that governments adopt. Governments will frequently uh, provide important tax breaks and, and other kinds of benefits to business interests in order to maintain the confidence of the business community, which is not something that would be true for the rest of American society. So I'm not going to say anything about those three things, but I wanted to um, to get them on the uh, on the table. Uh, now, in terms of um, in terms of trends, I think there are some some important trends that actually uh, do correspond to some degree with the trends in the overall patterning of inequality in the United States, and I think we can think of those trends in terms of uh, voting behavior first and foremost. Changes in the system of campaign finance in the United States, and uh, as we'll see, quite dramatic changes in in the period since, uh, since the 1970s. And then finally, and a thing that we don't often talk much about, simple eligibility to participate in elections in the United States. As we'll see, a growing share. Of the voting age population in the United States is actually ineligible to vote, and those people are disproportionately located at the bottom of the income distribution, um, which which uh, affects their their political capacity. And then uh, finally, I'll just say something, uh, make a few remarks about what what could be could be done. Now, um, debates about inequality in politics are contested. That is to say, uh, there are debates about whether or not the uh, class divisions in American society actually influence public opinion and voting behavior. And I think one of the things John pointed out, I think it's very important to keep in mind, and, and uh, one can document this across a wide range of issues, is that Differences in public opinion and attitudes, um, uh, preferences, the preferences of the poor and the rich are often not as pronounced as, as, uh, as some theories of, of democracy might, might predict. And that's, that's an important puzzle and suggests maybe some ways in which inequality may not be as substantial as we think. Um, then there's questions about whether the, the impact of class is growing or changing over time, or whether it's, it's relatively stable. Uh, uh, a third point which is often made by critics of the view that inequality matters for politics is that um, there is an important ways in which subordinate groups however disadvantaged they may be in other respects have countervailing power uh, particularly with respect to their electoral their potential electoral uh, power at the ballot box should they ever ever be mobilized might offset some of those those disadvantages um, and then finally there's an a body of research that will suggest that, suggests that the impact of, of money in the political system, no matter how, how much it's grown over the past 30 years, may not be quite as great as, as is often thought. So those are some of the, 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 the arguments that people have made against the view that, that growing inequality is particularly important for, for politics. Now I want to say something about this very first point uh, before, I, before I move on, the question of why why doesn't class matter matter more uh, for voting behavior, for public opinion, for the kinds of preferences that, that individuals uh, and, and members of groups have? And I think there are a number of reasons why uh, scholars have, have uh, concluded that class is not the sole source of political preferences and, and political behavior. For one thing, um, people have religious attitudes, which may uh, offset some of their 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 narrowly defined class interests, and this, of course, is the the key story told by Thomas Frank in his, his widely discussed book *What's the Matter with Kansas*, in which he focuses on how and in what ways uh, the the religious right and and uh, um, the uh, the Bush uh, the Bush uh, coalition have really. Uh, attempted to use religious attitudes to offset people's, people's basic material material interests. Race and racial attitudes are important, uh, another important potential source of, of preferences that, that may offset uh, narrowly defined class interests and keep the poor from, from uh, uh, adopting views that might challenge income inequality. Uh, region has been an important source of political change, and particularly in the United States as the South has grown in uh, in relative importance, the the, the South has always been much more conservative than the rest of the country. Uh, Social mobility, as John mentioned, I won't say anything more about it, but but the the idea either that you could move or that you have uh, moved either... uh, between your generation and that of your your parents or or within your own uh, life lifetime can be an important source that convinces you at least you have the possibility of being better off uh, in the future. partisanship, particularly inherited partisanship, is often viewed as as a way in which uh, uh, people don't necessarily behave politically on the basis of their current class class interests. They may have inherited a partisanship from their parents, which, which is different than the partisanship they might have if they, if they simply followed their their economic interests. And then finally, I'll just mention a lot of a number of analysts have noted that American politics, p- perhaps particularly in the state of California, are often heavily centered around the, the peculiarities of candidates and and. Uh, and the expression candidate-centered politics kind of captures a, multiple way, a multiplicity of ways in which, uh, in which the dynamics of campaigns center around individual characteristics of candidates rather than broader issues that they um, are discussing. So um, the, the, there are a number of reasons then why we might think class uh, doesn't matter as, as much as it does um, that have to do with the aptitudes and preferences of, of individuals. But classes are also organized collectively. That is to say, classes are not only attributes of individuals, but they're also expressed through organizational uh, the organizational capacity of different groups and, to be sure, political parties. The organizational power of different groups is often critical for mobilizing individuals to participate in the political system. So unions social movements, other types of organizations seeking to represent poor people can often have a powerful effect in bringing them into the political process and also in terms of shaping and reinforcing ideas about the political system. So to the extent to which those groups are relatively weaker, the the organizational side of class politics may be may be relatively relatively undermined. So let me just say something then about how class power is organized in the United States today and why uh, why this might contribute to this pattern of growing income inequality, or one of the political sources of growing income inequality. So let's start with uh, how class power is organized at the bottom. So um, the kinds of interest groups and social movement organizations representing poor people have For the most part, um, I think it's fair to say that they're fairly difficult to organize. Um, Poor people are often uh, in the process of struggling, struggling to survive, Uh, 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 and and they don't really have the kinds of resources that would allow them to to easily build enduring organizations. And uh, to be sure, this does happen. The civil rights movement is a classical example of a poor people's movement that had a vast impact on the political system, but it's relatively rare. Now, what is an important source of enduring power for for poor people in the working class, from pressure power from from below, is, is represented in, in in unions. Unions are embedded organizational actors that that uh, that can can be involved in policymaking in, an, in a in a, in a consistent, enduring way over time, but the American labor movement has over the past, uh, over the past uh, 40 years or so undergone a remarkable contraction. Unions are declining everywhere, but in the United States, the rate of decline is both relatively greater and um, has now reached the point where only about 13% of all American workers are organized, and most of those are actually uh, or, or a, a growing proportion of that 13% are in the public sector. The share of private sector workers who are organized has now fallen below uh, 10%. Now let's contrast this with the organizational power of the upper class. So um, when, we, when we look at uh, uh, the, the, uh, the upper class, we find a variety of well-organized and enduring organizations and, and capacities um, which enable the upper class to project power in the political system. So first off, we we would uh, point to the role of powerful, well-endowed business organizations like the Chamber of Commerce uh, and and others that uh, 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 provide a consistent voice in Washington, have a well-worked out uh, uh, lobbying apparatus, which is very powerful and important, and also businesses both coalitions of businesses and industries, but also individual companies, often have political action committees, or in fact, almost always have political action committees, which um, give a considerable amount of money to candidates around the country, and as, as I'll talk about in a minute, that political money can be, can be quite um, important. And then finally, uh, two, two other quick uh, comment on two other sources of power. These organizations, these upper class uh, uh, organizations, often will create policy planning Initiatives like think tanks, which which aim to to develop policy ideas and promote them in Congress, and so when we think about something like the enormous tax cuts of the Bush Bush uh, the Bush years, those didn't come out of thin air. They were they were they were crafted and created in inside uh, think tanks where where uh, uh, individuals thought up these ideas and developed the arguments and justifications that ultimately triumphed uh, over alternative views. And, and, and certainly, again, the role of the media would be something that we would want to, um, we would want to look at here. And then finally, um, political parties, I think John has already spoken about, some of the ways in which we want to pay attention to parties. Um, certainly, to some extent, voters shape parties, but parties also shape voters. And the American political system is unique in a couple of ways that are, I think, particularly important in understanding how it is that uh, we've reached the point um, in, in the distribution of income and wealth that we have. First of all, the United States, unlike most other democracies, is a two-party system uh, with first-past-the-post elections, if you will, which, which really make it almost uh, virtually impossible for third parties to emerge and be competitive. There's really only one successful example in American history, that was the creation of the Republican Party. We periodically have explosions of independent politics third party politics but they rarely rarely go anywhere Um, and uh, and because of this the logic of this two-party system the parties tend to compete for voters in the center Um, and by shifting just a handful of voters in the very center of the political system they uh, they can win elections and as a consequence i think both parties are pushed pushed to, to the center, although it's striking that in recent years that may not be as true for uh, for the Republican Party for reasons I think we'd want to puzzle through. And then the final thing that's unique about the American political system is the absence of a social democratic party. And most European uh, political systems, in fact all European political systems have powerful labor or social democratic parties which offer a kind of counterweight to, to conservative parties and are often associated with the adoption of policies that reduce income inequality. So um, let's then turn to, to, I wanted to, I said I wanted to say something about uh, four, four pieces of, of uh, evidence for why we get, uh, get the policies that we do. And so let's let, I want to start with political participation, then uh, voting behavior, campaign finance, and uh, I guess I have campaign finance and political money. That's one and the same. Uh, And so, uh, so turning then to the question of political participation, we really want to ask three things: who votes, Uh, who gives, because political participation is not simply about voting; it's also about uh, uh, other things, including who gives money, who gives time to campaigns, and uh, who. What I'm saying, who, uh, what I would call who insists—that is, who writes letters to their uh, elected officials, who who makes phone calls and things of things of that sort. So, in terms of uh, who votes, um, we—I uh, want to just present just a little bit of data here um, on, on uh, electoral participation that's drawn from the National Election Studies, a, a biennial survey of of the uh, uh, of uh, American society carried out by uh, the Center for Political Studies at the University of Michigan in conjunction with elections. And um, I want to distinguish here in this analysis between uh, six different classes that. Uh, represent important aggregates of individuals and households in the United States. Professionals, that is individuals employed in professional occupations, managers, uh, proprietors in the self-employed, that is those who who have their own businesses, and then uh, routine white-collar workers in in, uh, white-collar settings, and the skilled manual workers and non-skilled workers with everybody else outside the, uh, the labor force. And uh, our questions are really kind of threefold has, has uh, how large is the gap in political participation between these classes? Has it grown over time, and how much uh, does mobilization that is how much do the, the power of groups organized from below influence those um, those kinds of dynamics? So when we look at just uh, how big the gap is between particip- in participation rates between these various groups, um, what we find is that um, there's, there are very substantial differences in who votes. And uh, this, this uh, chart shows uh, two bars for each, each class. The, the top bar shows the, the self-reported uh, uh, rate of participation, and the bottom bar is adjusted for over-reporting, that is, People typically, many, some people say they voted when they, they really didn't in, in, uh, in election surveys. And so um, what we find is that professionals, um, we estimate average between 1980 and 2000 in presidential elections, that, that on average about 62% of professionals turned out to vote in, in, national, uh, in, in presidential elections, whereas only about 40% of non-skilled manual workers participated in, in, those, in those same elections. So there's a very substantial skew in participation, which is one way in which the voices of the powerful, that is the, the classes at the top of the distribution, have typically higher, significantly higher turnout rates than those, um, those at the bottom. Now, I wanted to say something about why, how and why we might explain this turnout gap, but uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to um, skip over most of this. But I do want to point out one thing, which is that um, changes in eligibility have... And often unnoticed, have had an unnoticed effect on, on rates of, of uh, political participation in the United States. And this is primarily due to rising rates of immigration since 19, the immigration reform in 1965. We see an ever-growing share of uh, American society made up of non, non, uh, uh, non-Native, non non uh uh, of immigrants, well, legal and, and to some extent illegal, uh, or unauthorized. And also, we disenfranchise the United States. We disenfranchise uh, large numbers of felons, and in some states, ex-felons. And if you're interested in the latter, I can recommend a great new book, which is just out, uh, available at an Amazon uh, near you. Um, but if we look at the overall um, pattern of, of eligibility, Um, Just looking since 1980, the period since 1980, We've seen that um, in in 1980, less than 5% of the voting-age population was ineligible to vote. By 2004, it's up to it's over 10%, and it continues to grow. And so, and and most of this group is located at the bottom of the income distribution. So, in a sense, the the capacity of the bottom of the of, uh, uh, of the American class structure has has been has been reduced as as a growing share of ineligible. Uh, adults in the, uh, in the political system. So, uh, uh, so those I think is, that's an important factor that we almost never talk about, and is is a kind of a largely unnoticed aspect of this current debate that we're now undergoing about immigration policy. In terms of other types of political participation, in terms of um, in terms of who who does things. Um, we can think about, uh, you know, voting, we can think about other types of activity. Now, this data is taken from a large-scale national survey undertaken by Sidney Verba and his colleagues, where they asked not just about who, who votes, but also other types of political activity, and this breaks out uh, those, the, the top bar, the blue, dark blue bar, are those making, those individuals living in households making over $75,000 a year. I think this is 1989, uh, when they, or 1990, when they collected this data, so... Uh, and, the, and, the, and the light blue bar are those who make less than fifteen house, living in households making less than fifteen thousand and You can see the very substantial differences whether we 're talking about campaign work, campaign contributions, contacting a political official, uh, uh, other types of informal political activity, voluntary uh, activity, being a member of a board or uh, 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 saying you 're a member of a, a political organization so Clearly there are big differences in terms of who who participates, and um, when we look at how these different classes um, participate in politics and how they vote, we we find also a a number of striking differences. So this next figure, um, which, uh, is, uh, is taken from a, a, a recent analysis that's actually going to be in a book that David Grusky is editing by Mike Hout and Benjamin Moody, it extends some work that, uh, that I've been involved in, in in the past, looking at how different classes have moved since 1948 in the, uh, in the National Election Study. Um, the midpoint reflects the overall electorate-wide average. Above the bar, above the, the zero point, reflects greater Democratic preference. Below the bar reflects greater levels of Republican preference. Um, And what we find is that professionals in the uh, early 1950s were the most um, Republican class in American politics, but by by the 1990s, um, they had become the most most Democratic class, a striking transformation of the political alignment of professionals in American society. By contrast, if we look at the trends among skilled blue-collar workers and less skilled or non-skilled blue-collar workers, Um, We find declining support for Democratic uh, candidates. Um, Non-skilled workers remain in a relative Democratic alignment, but um, their levels of Democratic preference have have declined um, significantly. Now, an important question is why this matters, and here is where I think I want to pay particular attention to some changes inside the Democratic Party. The um, parties consist, uh, or at least um, electorally, they consist of a coalition of groups. There are always a series of groups that make up the electorates of the Republican and Democratic parties. And each group contributes to that coalition because of, uh, 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 there are three p- components to that contribution, the size of the group, the bigger group, the more the more impact it's likely to have, how that group votes, so how loyal that group might be to one party or the other, and its level of turnout, that is, how, 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 uh, how much do the members of that group partici- uh, t- actually turn out to vote? And um, I, I want to give you, i am we're interested in both the, the contributions of the Democratic and Republican Party coalitions, but I want to give you the most dramatic story, which is to contrast the trends in, partici- in, in uh, the contributions of professionals and managers on the one hand to those of... Um, those of the working class. And what we find is that um, in 1960, there were almost three times as many working class voters as there were professionals and managers inside um, the uh, Democratic uh, Party coalition. By 1992, the ratio was one to one. In other words, there were as many professional and managerial voters in the Democratic coalition as there were working class voters. This striking transformation, the result of changes in demography, uh, to to uh, some extent, turnout, but all, but most, and, and the size of these different classes has really fundamentally changed the character of the Democratic Party, and um, perhaps has quite a bit to do with why it is um, as spineless as it is. Now, I was going to say something about political money, but um, I think uh, I think we're. I'm going to run out of time here, so instead of um, instead of doing that, let me let me just uh, let me just cut to um, some 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 brief um, concluding remarks and. Uh, and ask the question of what could or should be done in view of the the dynamics that uh, that I've been uh, been talking about. And let me start with some things that probably can't be done. So um, American institutions, as I uh, mentioned briefly, um, enable and hinder certain kinds of uh, expressions of lower class interest and make it um, uh, more likely for powerful groups to, to influence the political process. But... But these are very difficult to change. They're embedded in the Constitution, and we're not likely to move towards a system, say, of proportional representation, which would make it easier for third parties uh, to mobilize. So that's not likely to happen. And also, um, with respect to the influence of political money, um, campaign finance has has proven very difficult to to achieve in any sort of significant way. The Supreme Court has uh, has said repeatedly that uh, the principle of free speech governs the capacity of the government to significantly regulate the, the uh, funding of political ideas in the political system. So I think those kinds of things are, are relatively more difficult to, to, uh, to achieve, but I think there are some things that could be done. And let me just suggest three critical reforms that, that we might begin to think about. Okay, the first is, as I said at the beginning, unions are an important, enduring, embedded actor that protects and promotes the interests of the poor and the working class, and the relative weakness of American unions, I think, has a lot to do with with the um, the patterns of distribution of wealth and income that John mentioned in his uh, in his discussion, and, and a number of changes over the past forty years have made it almost impossible for workers to organize in private sector companies when those companies put up a fight. When those companies resist unions, they can almost invariably um, defeat the unions. Where unions have been successful is in the public sector, because typically public sector institutions don't really resist unions very, very extensively. So considering ideas of labor law reform and the impact that might have on the political system would be the first thing I would point to. Second thing um, that we might think about are some voting reforms which would make it easier for disadvantaged groups to participate. Making elections, uh, making election day a national holiday would be one thing that would clearly influence political participation and would have a bigger impact on those at the bottom of the distribution, making it easier for them to participate similarly extending uh, registration making voter registration something you can do on election day rather than requiring that you do it beforehand uh, might make it um, uh, uh, easier certainly I think with respect to this current debate that we 're having over legal legal immigrants um, making it easier for those who are who are permanent citizens or permanent residents in the United States to become full citizens would be a way in which we could Uh, potentially begin to shift the balance of of political power and give give those uh, at the bottom of the distribution a a better chance. Um, And then finally, the thing that I'm interested in in that book that I put up there, Locked Out, uh, is we need to think about restoring voting rights for for most or all convicted felons. These are still citizens but by denying them the right to vote, we diminish the voices of all of those who have the same preferences as as convicted felons, and we also make it more difficult for them to reintegrate back into their communities. And then finally, um, I think there are some types of campaign finance reform that might actually have some, some, uh, some impact, which I think the Supreme Court would allow, and that, in particular, I think, involves restructuring um, access to the media for credible candidates, giving free media time, allowing credible candidates to, to defend and promote their views. Whatever party they might be, be uh, affiliated with would be one type of reform that might then help to challenge some of the views that, that John talked about that have, have hindered... Um, have hindered, uh, have hindered uh, 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 American uh, uh, equality politics in the United States. Okay, so I'm pretty much out of time. So uh, let me just let me just stop there, and uh, and uh, I guess we can we can open up for uh, questions and comments. Do, do you want to Well, a number of a number of people hypothesized that that perhaps one thing that might account for the trends in, in uh, public policy would be that the poor are participating less than they used to, and as unions have declined, unions mobilize workers to vote, other social movement organizational decline, and so forth. Um, but that theory really hasn't been borne out by the evidence. Um, there are there is a there is a debate, and there are those who believe that the evidence suggests. That there has been some differential decline, whereas where poor and working-class voters are less likely to participate than they were in the 1960s, but the bulk of the evidence suggests that there hasn't been any major change
1: over time. Okay, and that's so, go, go. To you. Yeah, let me just go, can I say something about that? Um, I would look at the organizational aspects that Jeff began to develop, and um, especially in the upper side, I mean on the Republican side. If you, if you take the campaign finance system. In the lobbyist system, you know, that um, that has been integrated on the Republican side pretty well in terms of developing candidates and at the same time these you know think tanks and other things that that have flourished through that period. So I guess I'd look there partly, that's that's changed substantially over time, roughly in the right dating. That is to say, that campaign finance acts that were critical or 1971, 1974, the Buckley decision was 76. Pretty much we've been living in that regime since that time, and the Republicans have been relatively better than Democrats at taking advantage. Of the organizational opportunities, that that uh, in fact taking so much advantage of some of them now are now indicted. That <laughs> Tom Delay in the Case Street project is an example, but but still they've they've been very aggressive at taking advantage of the opportunities for finance that come from that, and then plus, you know it's it, it's it's useful to emphasize that as, as much is spent as, as is spent on campaign finance. All right, uh, I think what is it about five or six times that amount is spent for lobbying. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, campaign yeah. finance is the tail. Lobbying is the dog, you know, and and the Republicans have been very, again, aggressive at organizing lobbying activities and disciplining them into the Republican coalition a lot more than Democrats have. And at the same time, the organizational capability that went with unions, where unions were essentially think tanks, as, you know, at least in part, for the Democrats through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they've you know just been taken a bath on the private sector side. And so I think that that you know sort of. Um, you know, incubus for incubating chamber for democratic policy ideas, and that disciplining for Democrats, at least Northern Democrats and Western Democrats, to stay on the liberal side, I think that's evaporated. So I think the organizational development seemed to me to actually work pretty well in terms of timing. That's That, that would be my hunch. So.
2: right he,
3: sort of, he doesn't
2: explain it right but he doesn't sort of explore it. right uh, right one, have to talk more about that. yeah well we in my my first book was actually was all about trying to understand these patterns and and understand the sources of change among these different among these different classes and and the most funny, Rob, Oh, certain yeah um, so um, the, the the key patterns here are the the shift of professionals to to the democratic coalition um, the 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 striking uh, republican shift among owners and pro- among the self employed who were once a very centrist group not that different from the rest of American society, but by the 1980s had shifted quite dramatically into Republican alignment. And they're actually growing in size, which is an, an important uh, piece of, of this. And then, and then the trends among working class voters that you were asking about initially. So among professionals, um, the single thing that, that is most critical is has been, um, their growing social issue liberalism, that is their liberal views on social issues like gender equality, civil rights, civil liberties, um, Uh, and so forth, that they've moved in a liberal direction much faster than the rest of American society, and that that has pushed them in a democratic uh, direction. They're not more egalitarian um, than they were in the 1950s. They're no more likely to support government programs today than they were in the 1950s, but what has happened is they've gotten more liberal on these kinds of social issues. Mm With respect to to the working class, um, we really had um, a great deal of difficulty pinning down exactly what was going on. But the best explanation that we were able to um, develop is that um, for reasons that we don't fully understand and have not really been developed in in the literature, um, working class voters, from um, the 1970s particularly non skilled non skilled workers were more likely to see both their current their own situation and that of the country as a whole as more optimistic, cutting directly against all of the kinds of trends in terms of relative um, wealth and inequality that we're talking about, and some of the puzzles that John was pointing to. How could it be the case that that non-skilled workers would would view their own situation and that of the country as a whole better in the mid 1990s than they did in the 1960s? It's a big puzzle. I think part of the answer is that absolute wealth and inequality may have something that is um, as as these groups have have um, gained some some. Uh, uh, advantage uh, in absolute terms, and there are a number of ways to you know to think about that household size is smaller there are fewer individuals you know, absorbing the same household income. The kinds of goods that people have access to today for the same amount of money than they did in the 1970s. Are for, you, you could su- subjectively experience your living situation as better today with the same income rel- in real terms as you had in the 1970s because you can buy things like Walkman and I you don't know whatever consumer durables that, that people enjoy. So I think those, those would be some of the things that I would point to. And it, I think it's a big puzzle and I think it's something that I would like somebody
1: to do some more work on. Can I ask? I have a question for Jeff along this line. It strikes me that that since the Kennedy-Johnson period, which is which is just before this, since since that time, many Democratic parties have had the effect of splitting the 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 class base, essentially, if you want to put it that way. That is to say that you know affirmative action policies. I mean, basically, they work. You know, substantially to put you know. Lower class, working—you pl- know—especially in unions where you challenge seniority systems, in competition with eth- ethnic groups that have suffered historical discrimination, and I think that 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 there's a tension that's that's kind of worked through. Some of them nowadays are called wedge issues or whatever, but but I think that Democrats themselves adopt policies, adopted policies for a long time in the Great Society period and thereafter, and have continued to play them. That you know, because I mean, you know, for reasons of social justice or whatever, that I think have had ironic effects here, and I think it's I think it's driven some of these phenomena, at least in my view. So,
2: I think that's that's a that's a powerful suggestion, and one that, that a lot of people have have um, have uh, have thought about and and worked on. I think part, we actually had trouble finding good evidence. Now, albeit we don't have the best. Uh, in this national election study data set, we don't have the best items to really tap sort of people's preference, detailed preferences on things like affirmative action um, and so forth over the entire time period that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we had real trouble finding evidence that working class voters had shifted or, or had had, uh, had moved in ways that were significantly different than the rest of the population. Hence, mm-hmm. it couldn't really account for this, this downward shifting support for the, for the Democratic Party. Um, and we were unable to kind of sustain what sometimes is called a working class Authoritarianism thesis, where right. you know it's the working class that's the most authoritarian, the least willing to go along with policies well, promoting civil rights and civil liberties. Well, how
1: about just the drift, which I think is the drift, of Catholics and and the remaining union workers and working class people, during let's say the, Repo- the Re- from the, Re- the Reagan election, from the 1980 election on, which seemed that seems that there was a sort of you know crack in the Democratic coalition, with, which certain groups, which historically voted Democrat, began to vote. Republican. Now, I don't think that has been a constant tendency over time, but it's it's recurred from time to time, it seems to me. Right. So now, I don't know if that's a tendency, or but you couldn't find that either, or I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's a complicated phenomenon. We've got um, different things pushing classes in different directions, yeah. and so yeah. to certainly, to some extent, all of those things are going on, um, and um, you know, are 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 part of the puzzle. But the puzzle is to really figure out the relative weight of all of these different factors um, in a dynamic context where many things influence how individuals and classes classes vote. Um, And um, we had really trouble telling a very clean story. And I think the big disappointment of the book was not having uh, a fully well uh, worked out theory of what exactly was going on among working class voters. But certainly I think um, these kinds of social issue questions um, what we find is that it's professionals moving differently you know, compared to the rest of American society. That was the critical uh, mm-hmm. impact of those issues. It's more the relative liberalism of professionals and the rest of American society are, you know, relatively moving all t- towards in a more liberal direction, but but more okay. or less moving together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Over here. Yes.
3: No, really, input of the new uh, people and uh, new ideas. I mean, there are new.
2: Right,
1: John. Do you want to comment? Well, I, is there, I, uh, it's, a, it's a comment rather than a question, right? So, uh, I, I agree that, that American society is substantially less regulated on the labor side than most European countries. That's true. Um, but actually, the unionization rate in France is no higher than it is in the United States. It's just that they, they have a different the, the public attitude towards unions is different in France than it is in the United States. So they public is willing to permit, you know, these sort of general strikes and stuff that they do, even though the penetration in the industrial side of France is but roughly 10%. It's roughly where the United States is. So, and most most of the powerful unions in France are public sector unions, not like they are in the United States. So, so they're actually quite similar in that regard. But it's true that legally the restrictions on employment are much more, as you know, much more substantial in France than they are now. And one effect of that is to segment the labor market where the official unemployment rate in France is about 10 percent but they have a you know essentially a unregulated temporary market for you know temporary labor market which fills a little some of that you know but but it's very un, it's very unsatisfactory for ambitious people who want to actually so I mean I, I'm not defending the French system it's true that they have the French do have a more regulated labor market and it's probably less flexible on the whole than the American one and 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 probably it makes it a little bit difficult to to grow as effectively and to provide opportunities for people who want to work I agree with that so yeah, I, I, my view is that is that to some extent, at the market level, uh, well, so I said this not even to some extent at the market level, inequality is a is a price of growth, a gr- price of what you're talking about, providing opportunities, right? Now then, the, then the question is, insofar as inequality has socially bad effects, how much regulation of it can you do without without overwhelming its growth-producing effects? And and I think the American answer has been not too much. <laughs> And, and the European answer has been, especially the Scandinavian, is quite substantial. And, and whenever you get into a, a conference of people talking about you know, um, it, what good societies could be, you know, there's always talk about the Scandinavian model. Not the French. <laughs> right, the Scandinavian, the northern model. Because the idea there is, at least it seems in principle, in a certain kind of economy, maybe it's possible to have relatively productive economy with Relatively less income inequality at the end of the day than the Americans do. It's not at all obvious it's possible to do it, but that's that's what the Scandinavian model is always put forward as. And I don't have a view on it other than the fact that well, maybe if it works in Sweden, it could work in Sweden and Finland too. <laughs> so, or but maybe or maybe even in northern in Germany. I mean, there's, there have been German t- you know, The Germans to some extent look that direction for their social policy, and and you know it doesn't work as well. I think that's true, but. And of course, they've had the huge problem of trying to integrate the East there. So that's maybe not an experiment that they've actually run seriously. So.
3: unfortunately,
0: we're going to have to call it to close. Uh, all of you are fighting for reception.